doing today for me it's july 19th and it's about 115 degrees today i'm sitting here chilling drinking uh Michelob ultra feeling pretty good um i've recorded this so many times that i'm just gonna try to take the pressure off of myself of trying to make it absolutely perfect because I just want to bring you guys the absolute best episodes, and there are no excuses. So, let's see if I can get through this one without stopping in the middle and erasing everything <laughs> like I have the last four times. Um, but that's good, though. Being passionate about what you love is good. It's good. I got this information sent to me by a very close, near, dear, and special person, Whitney Fox. I just can't say enough about her. I just love her to death. So, she sends me this blog by David McGowan. And he, so, I'll, I'll try to maybe cover this in part two, but David McGowan was definitely off for his involvement in the conspiracy theory community. I think he brought so much information out that they were scared of him. That's just my opinion. But so rest in peace, Mr. David McGowan. And thank you, Whitney, for the information. It was mind-blowing and I hope to do it justice today. Although I'm only going to scratch the surface. And then you can go do some more research and digging on your own if you find it interesting. So... The way our story begins with David McGowan's research was his outlining of what led to the Vietnam War. And it's very interesting to me that some of the characters we meet along the way in this story, it all kind of leads back to the Vietnam War and the people who were involved in it. So, August of 1964 is where we're going to begin our story. And U.S. warships under the command of U.S. Navy Admiral, remember this name, George Stephen Morrison, allegedly come under attack while patrolling Vietnam's Tonkin Gulf. This event is later dubbed the Tonkin Gulf Incident. And what it does is it results in the passing by the U.S. Congress of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. And that was like the green light because 
The passing of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution quickly led to America's immersion into the bloody Vietnam War. And before it's over, 50,000 American bodies, along with literally millions of Southeast Asian bodies, will litter the battlefields of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And this is not, like we've seen so many fucking times before, a false flag operation. It was not an attack that was deliberately provoked at all. Now, what the Tonkin Gulf incident actually was is an attack, quote-unquote, that never took place at all. But by early February 1965, the U.S. will begin indiscriminately bombing North Vietnam. And by March of that same year, the infamous Operation Rolling Thunder will have commenced. And over the course of the next three and a half years, millions of tons of bombs, missiles, rockets, and chemical warfare agents will literally be dumped on the people of Vietnam. And by April 1965, 25,000 fully uniformed American kids barely out of high school will be slogging through the fucking rice paddies of Vietnam. And by the end of the year, U.S. troop strength will have surged to 200,000. So, what else is given birth to elsewhere in the nation during those early months of 1965? A new music scene and also the hippie flower child movement. Hang with me, you guys. This is this is going to be crazy. Okay. So it's just beginning to take shape in the city of Los Angeles. And the hippie flower child movement comes out of Los Angeles in a geographically and socially isolated community known as Laurel Canyon. A heavily wooded, rustic, serene, yet vaguely ominous slice of L.A. nestled in the hills that separate the Los Angeles Basin from the San Fernando Valley. Musicians, singers, and songwriters suddenly begin to gather here. And a number of rock music superstars will emerge from Laurel Canyon beginning in like the mid-1960s and going all the way through the 70s. And the first to drop an album out of the Laurel Canyon scene will be the band The Birds, whose biggest star will prove to be David Crosby. The band's debut song was Mr. Tambourine Man, which will be released on the summer solstice of 1965. I love tambourine. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Okay, and it will be quickly followed by releases from the John Phillips-led Mamas and the Papas around January 1966, and then Love with Arthur Lee, May 1966, and then Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, June 1966. And then we have Buffalo Springfield, another great one, featuring Stephen Stills and Neil Young. And that comes out in October 1966. And the last one I want to mention here is The Doors. 
January 1967. So while we're talking about the doors, one of the earliest on the Laurel Canyon Sunset Strip is Jim Morrison. And Jim will quickly become, as we all know, one of the most iconic, controversial, critically acclaimed, and influential figures that take up residence in Laurel Canyon. Curiously enough, though, the self-proclaimed Lizard King is the son of Admiral George Stephen Morrison. The very same Admiral George Stephen Morrison, who was the commanding officer of the U.S. warships that supposedly came under attack in what was dubbed the Tonkin Gulf Incident. Yeah, this same, very same one. So, even while his father is still actively conspiring to fabricate an incident that will be used to massively accelerate an illegal war, the son, Jim Morrison, is positioning himself to become an icon of the hippie anti-war crowd. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, who else do we have among our cast of characters? We have Laurel Canyon's father figure, who is the rather eccentric personality known as Frank Zappa. And Frank will hugely be influential among his contemporaries and kind of be, the, like I said before, the father figure of the movement. And so Zappa will literally play host to virtually every musician who passes through the canyon in the mid to late 1960s at, get this, the quote-unquote log cabin which was his home. So, the log cabin sat right in the heart of Laurel Canyon at the crossroads of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Lookout Mountain Avenue. And the quote-unquote log cabin was run as an early commune with numerous people occupying various rooms in the main house and the guest house, as well as in, get this, peculiar caves and tunnels lacing the grounds of the home. And the name, by the way, the log cabin, it it kind of implies like this quaint homesteady vibe. But what it really was, was a cavernous five-level home that featured a 2,000-plus square foot living room and three massive chandeliers and an enormous floor-to-ceiling stone fireplace. Does that sound like a rustic hippie vibe hangout commune. (laughs) No, this is a mansion in LA, folks. Don't get it twisted. So anyways, Frank Zappa will also discover and sign numerous acts to his various Laurel Canyon-based record labels. Some of them, such as psychedelic shock rocker Alice Cooper, will go on to superstardom. And Zappa, along with members of his entourage, will also be instrumental in introducing the look and attitude that defined the hippie counterculture. Zappa, though, 
was, by numerous accounts, a rigidly authoritarian control freak and a supporter of U.S. military actions in Southeast Asia. Frank's dad also had little regard for the youth culture of the 1960s, given that Francis Zappa was, in case you were wondering, a chemical warfare specialist assigned to the Edgewood Arsenal. Edgewood is, of course, the longtime home of America's chemical warfare program, as well as a facility frequently cited as being deeply enmeshed in MKUltra operations. So Frank Zappa literally grew up at the Edgewood Arsenal, having lived the first seven years of his life in military housing on the ground of the facility. So he grows up and the family later moved to Lancaster, California, near Edwards Air Force Base, where Francis Zappa continued to work on classified operations for the military intelligence complex. His son, Frank Zappa, meanwhile, prepped himself to become an icon of the peace and love crowd. This is a setup, folks. This is a setup. Absolutely. And before we continue, I just want to say the 60s music is the soundtrack of my life. Me and my mom would jam out to the mamas and the papas. We know every word, every song. That will never change for me. Although the information that I'm about to give you is repulsive and makes you never want to hear another song even close to the 60s or the 70s, keep in mind what I always say about separating the art from the artist. There have to be some things in life that you can still enjoy, like a Michelob Ultra, perhaps. So, moving on. Zappa's manager is a shadowy character by the name of Herb Cohen who had come out to L.A. from the Bronx just before the music and club scene began heating up. Cohen, a former U.S. Marine, had spent a few years traveling the world and blah, blah, blah before his arrival on the Laurel Canyon scene. What the, who the fuck is he to be managing music? He knows nothing of it. It's just, it's, everyone has to be connected, right? They're all players in the game. He knows nothing of music, yet he's going to manage Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, along with every other person he signs to his record label. Whatever. Let's keep going. That makes zero sense. So, making up the other half of the Laurel Canyon's first family, if you want to call it that, is Frank Zappa's wife, Gail Zappa, who was formerly known as Adelaide Slopeman. (laughs) I changed my name, too. So... Gail hails from a long line of career naval officers, including her father, who spent his life working on classified nuclear weapons research for the U.S. Navy. And Gail herself had once worked as a secretary for the Office of Naval Research and Development. And she also once told an interviewer that she heard voices all her life. Uh, yeah, bitch. Those are the sounds of devils. You're into the dark shit. So many years before their nearly simultaneous arrival in Laurel Canyon, wink, wink, Gail had attended a naval kindergarten with none other than Jim 
fucking Morrison. The very same Jim fucking Morrison that had attended the same Alexandria, Virginia high school as two other future Laurel Canyon luminaries. John Phillips and Cass Elliott of the Mamas and the Papas. So, I watched an interview this one time with John Phillips. And he was, like, telling this story of how he discovered Mama Cass, which now is a bunch of baloney. But he said she was working at a bar as a waitress and would walk around waiting the tables and singing. And he wasn't very interested in her because she was an alto. But one day she got bonked on the head by a pipe and all of a sudden could hit these really high notes. And so he offered her a spot in the band. Okay, maybe... He just forgot that they went to high school together and grew up together and their family was closely related. Not related, but like they knew each other and they fucking grew up together. Maybe John Phillips got bonked on the head by a pipe. Give me a break. So Papa John Phillips will also play a major role in spreading the emerging youth counterculture across America. And before arriving in Laurel Canyon, and opening the doors of his home to the soon-to-be-famous, the already-famous, and the infamous. John Edmund Andrew Phillips was, shockingly enough, yet another child of the military intelligence complex, the son of U.S. Marine Corps Captain Claude Andrew Phillips, and his mother, who claimed to have psychic and telekinetic powers. I'm sure she did. I'm sure they did lots of nice little experiments on her. So John attended a series of elite military prep schools in the Washington, D.C. area, culminating in an appointment to the prestigious U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. And after leaving Annapolis, John married, you guys are going to die, Susie Adams a direct descendant of founding father John Adams. Susie's father, James Adams Jr., had been involved in what Susie described as cloak and dagger stuff with the Air Force in Vienna, which is basically what we like to call covert intelligence operations. And Susie herself would later find employment at the Pentagon alongside John Phillips' older sister, Rosie, who dutifully reported to work at the complex for nearly 30 years. And John's mother, Dean Phillips, also worked for most of her life for the federal government in some unspecified capacity. And John's older brother, Tommy, was a battle-scarred former U.S. Marine who found work as a cop on the Alexandria Police Force, although he had a disciplinary record for exhibiting a violent streak when dealing with people of color, that bastard. So, it just makes you realize that if John Phillips wasn't of pedigree, would he have been allowed to marry Susie Adams, a direct descendant of a founding father, John Adams. I, it's just everything you've ever heard is true, people. This is all covered up under the disguise of 
rolling joints and wearing flowers in their hair. But these people are not peace-loving hippies at all. There's this song that I always sing as as a joke, really, from the Mamas and the Papas. And um, I, I used to love it, but now I just... It's all just a bunch of lies, like how they met and how they were involved in this scene and how they came together. They, per- they pretty much all grew up together and they're, all their families were in the military. They went to the same damn kindergarten together. But it's that one song that's like, Joan and Mickey were getting kind of itchy just to leave the folk music behind. Love that song. And no one's getting fat except Mama Cass. And so, speaking of Mama Cass, listen to this shit about the Mama and the Papas. So, John Phillips will go on to entertain many infamous people. And some of them not in a good way. Like Charlie Manson whose family, quote-unquote, spent time at the log cabin and at the Laurel Canyon home of Mama Cass Elliot. Saul and Denny working for a penny, trying to catch a fish on the line. No, none. Oh, fuck. So, did you know, by the way, that Mama Cass, her home, sat right across the street from the Laurel Canyon home of Abigail Folger and Boy Tech Frakowski? Yeah, we'll circle back, we'll circle back. And if you don't recognize those names, those are two victims of the Manson family. So let's move on to yet another Laurel Canyon person. We're going to talk about one of the earliest and brightest stars, Mr. Stephen Stills. And before his arrival on Laurel Canyon, Stephen Stills was the product of yet another career military family. Raised partly in Texas, Stephen spent large swaths of his childhood in El Salvador, Costa Rica, the Panama Canal Zone, and various other parts of Central America. As well as the rest of our cast of characters... Stills was educated primarily at schools on military bases and at elite military academies. And among his contemporaries in Laurel Canyon, he was widely viewed as having an abrasive authoritarian personality, which is what you'll keep finding, probably because of their family being in the military and having a strict upbringing. They were really generally described as being pricks. But so let's move on. Another icon And one of Laurel Canyon's most flamboyant residents is a young man by the name of David Crosby, founding member of the Birds, as well as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So Crosby is, not surprisingly, the son of an Annapolis graduate and World War II military intelligence officer, Major Floyd Delafield Crosby. And... (laughs) The Crosby family tree includes an array of U.S. senators and congressmen, state senators and assemblymen, governors, mayors, judges, Supreme Court justices, revolutionary and civil war generals, signers of the Declaration of Independence, and members of the Continental Congress. It also includes more than a few high-ranking Masons. Listen, if America had royalty, David Crosby would probably be a duke or a prince or something. 
and he's leading the hippie counterculture movement. He's a he's a damn patriot. This makes listen. You guys are going to be so sick to your stomach by the end of this. Okay, another shining star on the Laurel Canyon scene. Just a few years later, will be singer songwriter Jackson Brown, who want to guess the product of a career military family. Brown's father was assigned to post-war reconstruction work in Germany, which very likely means that he was under the employ of the OSS, which was a precursor to the CIA. So U.S. involvement in post-war reconstruction in Germany largely consisted of maintaining as much of the Nazi infrastructure as possible while shielding war criminals from capture and prosecution. Paperclip. And against that backdrop, Jackson Brown was born in a military hospital in Hildburg, Germany. And while we're on it, let's just go ahead and talk about Mike Nesmith of The Monkees and Corey Wells of Three Dog Night, two more hugely successful Laurel Canyon bands who both arrived in L.A. not long after serving time with the U.S. Air Force. Nesmith also inherited a family fortune estimated at 25 mil. Yeah, nobody I know inherits a family fortune of 25 mil even in 2020. So let's 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 talk about this for a second because it makes me think of the movie Forrest Gump and you would think that these hippies grew up in trailer parks, smoking weed, writing songs, loving life outside in a field playing with a stick somewhere wrong 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 they grew up on military bases and went to elite prep schools and this whole counterculture movement has been spoon-fed to us people and who else was in that movie by the way tom hanks but this is another episode another episode and but wait hold on wait a minute If these artists were rebelling against the values of their parents, then why didn't they ever speak out against them, huh? Why did Jim Morrison never denounce or even mention his father's key role in escalating one of America's bloodiest illegal wars? And why did Frank Zappa never write a song about the horrors of chemical warfare, but he did write a charming little ditty entitled The Ritual Dance of the Child Killer? Uh Uh-huh. I mean, the same goes for the Mamas and the Papas, and even David Crosby and Stephen Stills. They never once denounced the family values that they were raised with. So, I guess the question is, then, what if the musicians themselves were every bit a part of the intelligence community as their parents? So, basically, they were creating a fake opposition that could easily be controlled and led astray, And in reality, they were pretty much all playing on the same team. Great. Wonderful. You know, there are also a lot of murders, murderers, and dead bodies that turn up in Laurel Canyon. As it turns out, the most bloody mass murder in LA's history took place in one of the city's most serene pastoral and exclusive neighborhoods. The murders of, and you might recognize these names, Stephen Parent, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, 
Wojtek Frakowski and Abigail Folger at 10050 Cilio Drive in Benedict Canyon, just a couple miles to the west of Laurel Canyon, also known as the Manson Murders. These victims had deep ties to the Laurel Canyon scene. And I'll let you know here in a second how that was. But let's start with victims Folger and Frakowski. They actually lived in Laurel Canyon. At 2774 Woodstock Road in a rented home right across the road from a favored gathering spot for Laurel Canyon, the home of Mama Cass Elliott. Many of the visitors, by the way, of Cass Elliott's home included shady-ass drug dealers who were also regular visitors to the Folger-Furkowski home. And Furkowski's son, by the way, was stabbed to death on June 6, 1999, 30 years after his father met the same fate. Interesting. So now we have J.C. Brings Hair Salon which sat right at the mouth of Laurel Canyon, just below the Sunset Strip. And Sebring um, did Jim Morrison's hair. And one of the investors in his Sebring International Business Venture was Mr. John Phillips himself. Again, Mamas and the Papas. Now we have Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was very well known in Laurel Canyon, where she was a frequent vis- visitor to... Um, John Phillips, Mama Cass, and Abby Folger's home because they were her friends. And Denny Doherty, the other papa in the Mamas and the Papas, claimed that he and John Phillips were actually invited to the Cilio Drive house on the night of the murders, but as luck would have it, they never made it over. It sounds like they got tipped off. But along with the victims, the alleged killers also lived in and around the Laurel Canyon scene. Bobby Boussolet, for example, lived in a Laurel Canyon apartment during the early months of 1969. Charles Tech Watson, who allegedly led the death squad responsible for the carnage at Cilio Drive, lived for a long time in the home on Wonderland Avenue. And Charlie himself often paid visits to the log cabin and actually lived there for a little while. But we're going to talk about that later on. And did you know it's said that Neil Young used to sing the praises of Charles Manson? And given some of Neil Young's questionable behavior lately, it doesn't surprise me at all. So during a 10-year period, which... Stephen, Tate, Sebring, Frakowski, and Folger all turn up dead. A whole lot of other people connected to Laurel Canyon did as well. And they may not have died in the canyon, but their deaths were very suspicious and they were heavily connected with Laurel Canyon. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that they died in the canyon, but they're all interwoven. And I'm going to list some for you now. So this list includes, but is certainly not limited to, the following names. Marina Elizabeth Habe, whose body was carved up and tossed into the heavy brush along Mulholland Drive, just west of Beaumont Drive, on December 30th, 1968. Habe was just 17 at the time of her death. Christine Hinton 
who was killed in a head-on collision on September 30th, 1969 at the time. Hinton was a girlfriend of David Crosby, and she was also the founder and head of the Birds fan club. And get this, she was also the daughter of a career army officer stationed at the notorious Presidio base in San Francisco. So she was obviously picked for David Crosby, who's our American royalty. Uh, Jane Doe, number 59, found dumped into the heavy undergrowth of Laurel Canyon in November 1969 within sight of where Habe had been dumped less than a year earlier. The teenage girl, who was never identified, had been stabbed 157 times in the chest and throat. Now we have Alan Blindow Wilson, who was singer, songwriter, and guitarist for the Laurel Canyon blues rock band Canned Heat, was found dead in his Topanga Canyon home on September 3rd, 1970. His death was written off as a suicide OD. You'll see a lot of those, just like Marilyn, probably not a suicide OD. Jimi Hendrix, who reportedly briefly occupied the sprawling mansion just north of the log cabin after he moved to L.A. in 1968, died in London under seriously questionable circumstances on September 18, 1970. Though he rarely spoke of it, Jimmy had served a stint in the U.S. Army with the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. Jim Morrison, who for a time lived in a home on Rothdale Trail behind the Laurel Canyon Country Store and may or may not. There's a train. I'm sorry, can't do anything about it. So, Jim Morrison may or may not have died in Paris on July 3rd, 1971. And why I say that is because the events of that day are shrouded in mystery and rumors, and the details of the story have changed over the years, so nobody knows for sure. Then we have Brandon D. Wilds, a good friend of David Crosby and Graham Parsons, was killed in a freak accident in Colorado on July 6th, 1972, when his van plowed under a flatbed truck. Christine Furka, a former governess for Moon Zappa and the Zappa family's former housekeeper at the log cabin, died on November 5th, 1972 of an alleged drug overdose, though all her friends suspected foul play. Christine Furka was in the perfect position to have either overheard something she wasn't supposed to hear or see something that she wasn't supposed to see, especially being the governess and housekeeper for the log cabin. So I think she heard or saw something, and maybe she was going to talk. And whoop, little overdose for you. Sorry, Christine. Dead as a doornail. Next, we have Danny Witten, a guitarist, vocalist, songwriter with the Neil Young Band. Died of an overdose on November 18th, 1972. Bruce Berry, a roadie for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, died of a heroin overdose in June 1973. Clarence White, a guitarist who had played with the Birds, was run over by a drunk driver and killed on July 14th, 1973. Graham Parsons. Formerly with the International Submarine Band, the Birds, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, 
allegedly overdosed on a speedball at the Joshua Tree Inn on September 19, 1973. And after his death, his body was stolen from LAX by the Burrito Brothers road manager, Phil Kaufman, and then taken back out to Joshua Tree and ritually burned on the autumn equinox. Nothing suspicious there. <laughs> now we have Mama Cass Elliot, the Earth Mother herself of Laurel Canyon, whose circle of friends included musicians, Masonites, young Hollywood stars, singer-songwriters, and assorted drug dealers. She died in the London home of Harry Nilsson, who was a close friend of John Lennon, and she died on July 29th, 1974. And the initial press report said that Cass had choked to death on a ham sandwich. But later on, the official cause of death was listed as heart failure. But I think her cause of death may actually been knowing where too many of the bodies were buried. But I, I like the ham sandwich angle. Let's go with the ham sandwich. Amy Gossage, Graham Nash's girlfriend at the time, was murdered in her San Francisco home on February 13, 1975. She was just 23 years old at the time, and she had been stabbed nearly 50 times and was bludgeoned beyond recognition. And we also have Phyllis Major Brown. Wife of singer-songwriter Jackson Brown reportedly overdosed on barbiturates on March 25, 1976. Bobby Fuller, singer-songwriter guitarist for the Bobby Fuller Four, was found dead in his car near Grauman's Chinese Theater on July 18, 1966, after being lured away from his home by a mysterious 3 a.m. phone call of unknown origin. Then we have Gary Hinman, a musician, music teacher, and part-time chemist, was brutally murdered in his Topanga Canyon home on July 27, 1969. Convicted of his murder was Masonite Bobby Beausoleil from the Manson family. Next, we have my very favorite, Janis Joplin, the vocalist extraordinaire, who was found dead of a heroin overdose on October 4th, 1970 at the Landmark Hotel, about a mile east of the mouth of Laurel Canyon. And like Morrison and Hendrix, Joplin died at the age of 27. Now enter the 27 Club. <laughs> Just kidding, but she is a part of it, so... Next on the list, Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley, lead guitarist and bass player for the Allman Brothers, were killed in freakishly similar motorcycle crashes on October 29, 1971, and then on November 11, 1972. And lastly, we have Phil Oakes, folk singer, songwriter, and political activist, was found hanged in his sister's home in Far Rockaway, New York, on April 9, 1976. So there we have a couple. Of now, this isn't all of them. This is just some I thought you might find interesting. There's a lot more. And there's a, a lot more weird stuff. Now, um, I want to talk about, about the log cabin a little bit more. Just to set it up for you. Um, 
shortly after the log cabin was built, some department store mogul built an imposing castle-like mansion across the road from it at the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and what would become Willow Glen Road. And the department store mogul's home featured rather creepy towers and the foundation is said to have been riddled with secret passageways, tunnels, and hidden chambers. And the grounds of the estate are still laced with trails leading to grottos and elaborate stone structures and hidden caves and tunnels. And you know what else? The grounds of the Laurel Tavern slash log cabin were also laced with these odd caves and tunnels. According to some different people, one of the secret tunnels running under Laurel Canyon Boulevard connected the log cabin to the Houdini estate. Now enter Harry Muffucking Houdini. And this is not a joke. Harry Houdini, who died on Halloween Day 1926, supposedly of an attack of appendicitis precipitated by a blow to the stomach, is also connected with the Laurel Canyon. So the only problem with a- appendicitis precipitated by a blow to the stomach is that medical science now recognizes that to be an impossibility. So Houdini was likely murdered by poisoning. And Houdini was apparently given some kind of an experimental serum in the hospital. And his wife Bess may also have been poisoned, but she survived. So Houdini's death on October 31st, 1926 came exactly eight years after the first death to occur in what would become known as the Houdini house. So what was the first murder that occurred exactly eight years earlier? Well, in 1918, not long after the home was built, these two gay guys, lovers, were fighting and a quarrel arose on one of the home's balconies during a Halloween birthday party. And the gay lover of the original owner's son reportedly ended up splattered on the ground. And according to legend, the businessman managed to get his son off, but only after paying off everyone he could find to pay off, including the trial judge. And the aftermath of the party proved to be extremely financially devastating for the family, and the home was put up for sale. So not long after that, as fate would have it, Harry Houdini was looking for a place to stay in the Hollywood area as he had decided to break into the motion picture business and he found the perfect home in Laurel Canyon in the home that would forever after carry his name. But what is more interesting about Houdini is that it turns out Harry Houdini was a spook working for both the U.S. Secret Service and Scotland Yard. And his traveling escape act was pretty much just a cover for intelligence activities. Just as John Wilkes Booth used his career as a traveling stage performer as a cover for intelligence operations. So now we've connected Houdini in with this snarled up mess. So, 
in the 1950s, as Barney Hoskins wrote in Hotel California, Laurel Canyon was home to like, quote unquote, the hippest young actors, right? So according to Hoskins, Marlon Brando, James Dean, James Corburn, and Dennis Hopper all lived in the canyon. In addition to Hopper and Dean, though, yet another of the young stars of Rebel Without a Cause found a home in the canyon as well. Natalie Wood. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's like every episode I've ever done or ever thought about doing leads back to the canyon. So full of synchronicities here. So Natalie Wood lived in the very home that Cass Elliott would later turn into a Laurel Canyon party house. The same party house that was right across the street from the Manson murders. So now I want to introduce you to someone. And I want you to remember this name. This guy, his name is Vito Palikas. And his full name is said to have been something I can barely even pronounce, which was something along the lines of Vitatus Alafonsus Palikas. He was born the son of a Lithuanian sausage maker circa 1912, and he claimed that he hailed from Lowell, Massachusetts. Following his release from the service around 1946, Vito Palikas arrives in Los Angeles. Palikas claimed to be a serious artist, like a painter, poet, dancer, photographer, sculptor, what have you. But there is scant evidence that can be found that supports this claim. However, he would have a huge impact on Frank Zappa and would also contribute to molding and shaping the hippie movement. He was also, as a side job, involved in disgusting pedophilia and dark arts. And his little three-year-old son would die under suspicious circumstances and Vito Paulikas would go out dancing after he hears the news of his child's death. And Vito Paulikas' son was reportedly subjected to pedophilic treatment by his parents and others. And the boy's parents displayed a truly disgusting and chilling indifference to the child's death. And so after the the death of the child, Vito then fled to Haiti and then after to Jamaica, accompanied by his wife and their new baby daughter, whose name was Groovy Nipple. And if you think I'm fucking kidding you, I'm not. Her name was Groovy Nipple. So, the Manson family lived on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in the log cabin for a few weeks, as I had mentioned earlier, in the late 1960s in a quote-unquote cave-like hollow in the back of the residence. So, why does this connect with Vito Polygus? Manson came there because he had heard about Vito, but Vito was already gone by the time he got there. But then later in the 1970s, V 
Vito Palikis resurfaced up in North Cotati, California. I want you to remember the name Vito Palikis because we are going to circle back to that in just a minute. So, moving on. Many young and super glamorous Hollywood stars forge very close bonds with the Laurel Canyon musicians. Some of them, like Peter Fonda, found homes in the canyon so that they could live, work, and party amongst the rock stars. And in their free time, they could pass John Phillips' wife around to just about every swinging dick in the canyon, including Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Warren Beatty, Roman Polanski, and Gene Clark of the Birds. And some of these movie stars, by the way, never left. Jack Nicholson, to this day, lives in a spacious estate just off the portion of Mulholland Drive that lies between Laurel Canyon and Coldwater Canyon. And from the symbolic relationship between the Laurel Canyon actors and the musicians was this bond of love and creativity. And from that arose a series of feature films that are now considered to be counterculture classics. And the most critically acclaimed of them all, and the one with the deepest roots in Laurel Canyon, was Easy Rider. So it's from a script that was co-written by Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda. And it starred Fonda and Hopper along with Jack Nicholson. And since Easy Rider had such deep roots in the Laurel Canyon scene, let's talk about the director. His name was Jeremy Kay, also known as Jerry Kay. And before Easy Rider, Kay worked on such cinematic abominations as Angels from Hell, Hell's Angels on Wheels, also with Jack Nicholson, and Scorpio Rising, Kenneth Anger's homage to gay bikers. So, in the mid-1970s, Kay would write, direct, and produce a film entitled Satan's Children. But what's more interesting than all these gross movies is a little something about his membership in the 1960s with a group known as the Solar Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO. <laughs> OTO, OTO. Oh my God, you guys. It's like, it's all here for you. It's a buffet. So, the Solar Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis found itself in the news and not in a good way. Just after Easy Rider opened up in theaters across America. So, two weeks after Easy Rider comes out on July 14th, 1969. Police, acting on a phone tip, raided the Solar Lodge's compound near Blythe, California, and found a six-year-old little boy locked outdoors in a six-by-six wooden crate in the sweltering desert heat. The young boy, whose father was a Los Angeles County probation officer, had been chained to a steel plate for nearly two months in temperatures reaching as high as 117 degrees. According to an FBI report, the box also contained a can 
quote-unquote, partially filled with human waste and swarming with flies, and the stench was nauseating. So, before being put in the box, the little boy had been burned with matches and beaten with bamboo poles by cult members. The leader of the cult, Georgina Brayton, had reportedly told cult members that when it was convenient for her, she was going to give the little boy LSD and set fire to the box in which he was chained and give him just enough chain to get out of reach of the fire. Yeah, right. But don't worry, killing the child had also been discussed and apparently condoned by the boy's mind-fucked mother. And 11 adult members of the sect were charged with felony child abuse. The majority of them were young white men in their early 20s. All were brought to trial and convicted. Thank God. But in a weird bit of timing, actually, the raid that resulted in the arrests and convictions of these OTO members actually coincided with the torture and murder of musician Gary Henman by a trio of Manson family members. And the massacre at the Tate residence occurred less than two weeks after the raid on the OTO compound. And then Manson's Barker Ranch hideout would be raided a few months later on October 12, 1969. The birthday of Aleister Crowley, the grand poobah of the OTO, until his death in 1947. So I know I mentioned earlier Jack Nicholson a few times. And I want to talk about him a little bit because... Obviously, I've always loved Jack Nicholson, but I found some information that's kind of like, mm, I, I, I'm going to say a red flag, but it's like you could literally cut and paste Ted Bundy's bio into Jack Nicholson's bio because they both grew up. There's a lot of similarities, but one of them in particular is that they both grew up thinking that their mother was their sister and raised by their grandmothers. And Actually, it's said that Nicholson was born at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City, but there is no record of such a birth at the hospital or in the city's archives. As it turns out, Jack Nicholson has no birth certificate until 1954, by which time he was nearly an adult. He did not officially exist. That is so creepy. Even today, the closest thing he has to a birth certificate is this certificate of a delayed report of birth that was filed on uh, May 24th, 1954. And the document lists John and Ethel Nicholson as the parents and identifies the location of the birth at the Nicholson's home in Neptune, New Jersey. And you know, it, it appears that there's no real way to determine who Jack Nicholson really is. And he's actually told journalists before that he has no interest in identifying who his father was or verifying his mother's identity. So that's, you could do a whole episode just on Jack Nicholson. But I want to blow your minds a little bit on this next section because so far, We've encountered Masons, the FBI, the OSS, the CIA, um, the Rothschild family, military intelligence of every conceivable stripe, and the OTO. 
along with the neocon cabal and just about every other nefarious group that regularly pops up in the conspiracy culture. With one exception, we have not met up with any member of the Rockefeller clan. Lucky for you, though, I will be providing the juicy details now. So, I got this from David McGowan's research, and this next contribution comes from deep within the archives of Time Magazine from an article entitled The Bride War Pink. Published six decades ago on February 23rd, 1948, quote, One morning last week, bespectacled Brian Browden, editor of the weekly Okeechobee News, sauntered into the Okeechobee courthouse and stopped to eye the bulletin board in the main hall. Among the marriage license applications, which, by Florida law, must be publicly posted for three days before a ceremony, he saw something which made him goggle. Winthrop Rockefeller, 35, of New York, the fourth of John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s five sons and one of the most eligible bachelors in the world, had stated his intention of marrying one Eva Spears, also of New York, end quote. Who is Eva Spears? Somebody had announced, some guy had said that she was Miss Barbara Paul Spears, of the fine old Philadelphia Pauls and thus a society girl of impeccable pedigree. He was wrong, 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 wrong. So who was this mystery woman? This woman, who had once had a brief career in Hollywood before moving to Paris and taking a job as a secretary at the U.S. Embassy, She appears to have gone by many names at different times in her life, including Eva Paul, Eva Paul Spears, Barbara Paul, Barbara Paul Spears, and Bobo Rockefeller. None of them, however, were the names she was given at the time of her birth. Her parents were Lithuanian immigrants, and she was born Javet Palakwit in some kind of a coach patch near Noblestown, Pennsylvania. But even that was not her real name. Because in her parents' homeland, Polyquete is the feminine version of a surname we have previously encountered. Polycus, which was her parents' surname. Eva Paul's father, as it turns out, just happened to be the brother of Vito Polycus' father. That means that Vito Polycus was a first cousin of Bobo Rockefeller and cousins by marriage of Winthrop Rockefeller himself. Vito was also a cousin of the couple's only child, Winthrop Paul Rockefeller, who would later serve as the lieutenant governor of the state of Arkansas. And thus, The Rockefellers are connected to the Laurel Canyon scene. Why not? I mean, Vito Polycus is into all the same shit, right? Pedophilia, gross, nasty, whatever. And so Laurel Canyon 
continue to be an ideal place for all the rock musicians and hippies and flower children to hang out in the 60s all the way through the 70s, even with the stench from all the dead bodies that kept piling up. And speaking of dead bodies, Mr. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who purportedly drowned without assistance in his home swimming pool on July 3rd, 1969, at the age 27, is also on the Laurel Canyon death list. And just three days after Jones had tragically drowned to death, the Stones with the Hells Angels providing security played a previously scheduled concert in Hyde Park and the footage actually appears in Kenneth Anger's Invocation of My Demon Brother. But so what does that have to do with Laurel Canyon? Uh, in the summer of 1968, the Stones were actually flirting with Satanism and the occult and spending a lot of time in Los Angeles. A lot of time in and around Laurel Canyon. And during that time, Mick Jagger was involved in two occult film projects, which were Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising and another film by Donald Camel, which was called Performance. And Jagger was the first musical superstar that Kenneth Anger asked to compose a soundtrack for the movie Lucifer Rising. Um, but he would actually go on to later try to solicit the soundtrack from Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page, by the way, is the proud owner of one of the world's largest collections of Aleister Crowley memorabilia. Uh-huh. Including Crowley's notorious Boliskine estate off the shores of Scotland's Loch Ness. No wonder there is a fucking Loch Ness monster out there. He opened the portal to some shit. But anyways... The film did not feature a soundtrack by neither Jagger or Page. Lucifer Rising featured a soundtrack posed, recorded, and arranged inside of a prison cell by convicted murderer Bobby Beausoleil of the Manson family. How fucked is that? Donald Camel, by the way, was the son of Charles Richard Camel, who happened to be a close friend and biographer of notorious occultist and British intelligence asset Aleister Crowley. Donald himself was the godson of the Great Beast. So on his film performance, Camel recruited this dude named Bernard Alfred Jack Nietzsche who was an occultist and the son of a supposed medium. And he was the one to create the film soundtrack. Nietzsche was also a familiar presence on the Laurel Canyon scene and collaborated with Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young, Crazy Horse, Randy Newman, Michelle Phillips, The Turtles, Captain Beefheart, and Carol King. And Nietzsche also worked with several of the people we will be adding to the Laurel Canyon death list, including David Blue, Ricky Nelson, and Sonny Bono. Nietzsche's performance soundtrack was composed, according to author Michael Walker, in a witch's cottage in the canyon. And I'm not exactly sure what a witch's cottage is, but it's nice to know that Laurel Canyon had one. 
And makes a lot more sense to me because Elton John always used to say that he wrote every single one of his songs in quote unquote witch language. So this is dark shit, people. But, you know, let's now add Donald Camel himself to the death list. Since on April 24th, 1996, he caught a bullet to the head. And before moving on from that movie performance, there is one other thing I need to mention. John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas once stated that performance was about estranging oneself from society in order to create a new, better social order, quote unquote, with really intelligent people. And according to Phillips, quote, it's almost a matter of inbreeding at this point, end quote. I, I looked like a featherless chicken when I read that because I saw this interview and and let me back up a little bit I watched a movie all the time as a kid with my mom called American Graffiti it was one of our favorite movies of all time I know every line in that movie I mean literally every line in that movie and in the movie there's this little ugly thing and she's like 12 or 13 years old big old chompers and she's a red-haired girl who plays this character that's essentially a nerd who has a crush on this older guy and he doesn't do anything weird with her or anything but he like drives around town and they prank people and it's just a happy fun loving movie but it turns out that the nerd girl with the big chompers is Mackenzie Phillips John Phillips of the mama and the papa's daughter And she has now come out as an adult and stated that she engaged in a 10-year consensual sexual relationship with her father. And she said they would take drugs together and she would just wake up in his bed with her pants around her ankles and her dad cuddled up next to her. And it happened several times. Um, And for this quote by John Phillips saying it's almost a matter of inbreeding at this point. Of course he thinks that. He was literally having sex with his own daughter because that's what these elite people do. This is normal to them. And if you are raised as a child in a family who thinks like this, maybe you would even think it was normal and grow up and do it to your own kids because that's how they do this. You're born into it, raised in it, and then you continue on perpetuating this vicious cycle. And it's gross and disgusting. And you know who else had a thing for young girls who had no business being married? Elvis. So now I need to add Elvis to the death list as well. I'm telling you, you guys, this runs deep. This runs deep. So Elvis arrived in LA around like 1956 to begin what would prove to be a prolific film career that would continue throughout the 1960s and would result in the creation of nearly three dozen motion pictures. Elvis reportedly spent his off time hanging out with his pals um, and roommates who were actually Canaanites, uh, Dennis Hopper and Dick Adams. And in later years, Presley's backing musicians were considered to be among the best session musicians in the business, and they were in high demand among the Laurel Canyon crowd. So Elvis' bass player, for example, is on some of the Doors tracks, 
and the entire band was recruited by Papa John Phillips to play on his less than memorable solo project. And then Mike Nesmith's critically acclaimed Post Monkeys project, the first national bank, featured Presley's band as well. And then Graham Parsons actually hired Elvis Band to back him up on uh, two solo albums he recorded in like the twilight of his career. So even though Elvis really only had like peripheral connections to Laurel Canyon, it's still there. And he's still technically a part of it. And we all know what he was doing with Priscilla. (laughs) So... I guess I don't really have much more to say about Elvis other than he reportedly died on on August 16th, 1977, the supposed victim of a drug overdose and died at age 42. But I'm highly questioning that now. And moving on to the next new name on our list. Oh, I can barely even say it. It's so heartbreaking. You guys are never going to believe this. The next person on our list was born Henry John, last name I can barely pronounce, Duchendorfen Jr., better known as John Denver. John Denver was born in Roswell, New Mexico on December 31st, 1943. A few years later, the town of Roswell would make a name for itself and become something of a tourist destination. Been there, saw everything, got a t-shirt, loved it, by the way. Henry John Duchendorfen Sr., though, might have known a little something about that incident. Henry John Duchendorfen Sr. is John Denver's dad. Um, And he might have known a little something about it because he was a career U.S. Air Force officer assigned to the Roswell Army Airfield, later renamed the Walker Air Force Base, which was likely the origin of the object that famously crashed in Roswell. Denver was front and center at the so-called Riot on the Sunset Strip alongside people like Peter Fonda, Sal Minio, and uh, Sonny and Cher. And in autumn of 1997, Denver died when his self-piloted plane crashed soon after taking off from the Monterey Airport. Um, And the date of the crash, curiously enough, was one that we keep hearing, which is October 12th. So he was a part of the scene, he knew everybody, and his dad was a military person working at Roswell and probably staged the whole Roswell thing. I mean, that's me joking, but at this point, I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, really. Fuck you, John Denver, for making me love you so much and then breaking my heart. And by the way, your last name is stupid, Duchendorfen. So, who are we going to end it with? We are going to end it with former Beatle John Lennon, who is sure to be one of the most famous names to be found on the Laurel Canyon death list. So Lennon also has the distinction of being one of the only Laurel Canyon alumni whose cause of death is acknowledged to have been homicide. 
So the ex-Beatle, of course, never lived in the canyon, but he was definitely a fixture on the Sunset Strip and at various Laurel Canyon hangouts, frequently in the company of Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson is the person who Mama Cass died at their house eating a ham sandwich. So John Lennon was gunned down on December 8, 1980, supposedly by Mark David Chapman, but more likely by a second gunman, another episode, another episode, Lennon was, as everyone knows, murdered in front of New York's Dakota Apartments, which had been portrayed by filmmaker Roman Polanski in the 1960s as a den of satanic cult activity in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. So not long Before Lennon's murder, Chapman had approached occult filmmaker Kenneth Anger and offered him a gift of live bullets. So, just days after John Lennon was shot and murdered, Kenneth Anger's long-delayed final cut of Lucifer Rising makes its New York debut, not far from the bloodstained grounds of the Dakota Apartments. And that is going to be the end of part one i have so much more shit you guys to put into part two that you will be singing my praises in just a few weeks i hope you enjoyed this episode again i'm just scratching the surface because i'm not going to sit here and make you listen to a 26 hour long episode And I'm going to include now a couple of clips. One is from Frank Zappa trying to dodge the question of how his band came together. Why wouldn't you just say why your band came together? Why is it all mysterious? I don't know. Maybe it's because it's a setup. Um, And then I'm going to include another clip of Mackenzie Phillips talking about the several rapes she encountered from her father. Uh, Let's catch back up on part two. I hope to see you there. Let me know what you think of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Frank, how did the Mothers of Invention come about? You mean the name? Because the record company refused to have a group on the label called The Mothers. They had talked to some uh, people with marketing expertise and had ascertained that the American public would refuse to deal with a group called the Mothers, so I had to have of invention on the end of it, otherwise they wouldn't give us a record contract. How did the band come together? Um, by accident. Okay. <laughs> Let me go on to a different topic then. That's good. Okay. <laughs> And I went over to my father's hotel room and we, he had a lot of drugs, I had a lot of drugs, we took a lot of drugs. And all I remember is arriving in the room, getting high, and then I remember sort of, you know, kind of, I don't know if you know this, you probably don't know this, if you're in a blackout and you're not in your body and then you come to in your body, I was in the act of having sex with my father. What did you think? What did I think? I thought... How did this happen? How did I end up here? And, and plus, which I was on drugs. So, I mean, there's that element of, is this really real? And he was on drugs. Absolutely. What did he say? 
uh, he didn't say anything at that time. I was probably cognizant for less than a minute, slid back into a blackout and woke up in my own hotel room the next day. Don't remember anything from that time on? No. When was the next time you saw him? Probably the next day. What did he say? We, we, wasn't, we didn't speak about it until I brought it up to him several months later. And I said to him... What were the circumstances yeah. then? The circumstances, we were in New York, and he was living off of Houston, and he was sitting in a rocking chair, and I remember the lighting was sort of, you know, low. And I'd gone over there to talk to him because I was very disturbed by this reality. And I said, you know, Dad, we really... You're still taking drugs? Yes. Yeah, okay. I said, we really need to talk about what happened in Florida. We need to talk about how... And I used the word rape for want of a better word. How you raped me. And he said, raped you? Don't you mean when we made love? And I thought to myself, wow, I I'm so... Screwed. I'm. S I, I. I. I sort of closed my mind to it and put it in a little emotional mental box and took it out and looked at it every once in a while. But I never really. Uh, what do you do? What do you do? Where was your mother? My mother and I weren't really in contact that much then, but I, I was with my mother a couple days ago and I laid it all out for her. I, I told her about it. I told my aunt Rosie about it. Um, and they and I said, you know, what what should we do? This is wrong. I've been I've been violated, you know. And they said, you know, you're you're really risking a lot if you go after him. And I said, well, I don't want his life. I don't want bad things to happen to him. But I also don't want bad things to happen to me as a result of this. And I was convinced to let it lie. Now you write, sex with my father was like a runaway train. I felt like I had no power to do anything about it. And you say it was consensual. How soon after the first time did it occur again? Uh, the way it occurred after the first time, nothing occurred for, I was 18, 19 years old, nothing occurred for probably three or four years. Then I went on the road with the new mamas and the papas, and I was with my dad on a daily basis, and there were lots and lots of drugs involved. And your stepmother was there too? No, she was at home with the kids, okay. the younger kids. I have younger brothers and sisters, quite a lot younger than I am. And um, uh, it, we would take drugs and do the show and you know all that kind of insanity and I started waking up in my father's hotel room bed with I wore a lot of leggings you know those tight black legging pants back in the 80s because it was you know really big then and and uh, I would wake up with them down around my ankles and I would think how did this where am I how did this happen and I look over and I'm in my father's bed and he's sleeping next to me and this happened, it didn't happen, as I've said, it didn't happen every day, it didn't happen every week. It occurred. Did he have any guilt? Look, my father lived in a world of his own creation. He was a great man, there's a fine line between genius and insanity, as we all know. Um, he tried very hard to live a life that he, of his choosing. And I think, and this is only my point of view, I think that, that to him, if sex happened between a father and a daughter and nobody protested, where's the problem? Yeah.
passed along. 